You're listening to the Dungeons, Dragons, and Psychology Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Dungeons, Dragons, and Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Walker. On today's session, I'm joined by my friend, economist and numbers guru, Joseph Henry. We're going to be discussing and probably debating the merits of different stat generation methods. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hey there. Pleasure to be here, Rob. Thank you. So before we get started into the main topic, can you tell me any of your favorite or least favorite moments from games that you've been a part of just as a way to get you feeling comfortable with the back and forth banter? Favorite moments? Um, you know, the I think the one that stands out to me was actually playing a barbarian. I think I had a legendary glaive that uh, you wish for a crit off of a glaive, which if you're familiar can be uh, problematic. Uh, I think there was something involving like a god dying. It was it was a whole mess, uh, but it was a good time. <laughs> How did that work out for you? Uh, worked out great for me. Not so great for the god. <laughs> well, that's you know, if that's what you're trying to get done, I suppose that works. I mean, at a certten point, you just have to kill God. You know how it goes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that that's a pretty common theme in a lot of games I've been it's a part of. How often it comes up, right? It really does. I, there's something about the fantasy world setting and. Um, deposing a government isn't enough. We need to take down a deity. Yeah, Nietzsche would be proud. Okay, so stat generation methods is our topic today. And I think it's going to be an interesting conversation because, well, frankly, you and I don't necessarily agree on stat generation methods. I I would dare say not. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. So why don't you tell me your version of the best way to create stats for a character and why you think that? Well, uh, so the I think the biggest problem with playing with a lot of veteran D&D players is that these are people who have been playing for, say, like 20 years, right? And so they have a lot of expectations about, like, how stats should go and, like, what is tradition. And uh, the, the biggest issue that I see is that when you say roll dice, there's, of course, a large element of variance. And it is very easy for players to end up in a situation where one player may end up with a very generous stat block, and other players may not have nearly uh, the same level of power to bring to bear. Uh, and this puts you in a situation where one player may be having significantly more fun, uh, especially if you've ever felt one player taking over a session. Uh, and this can be very oppressive to your other players, which uh, only gets to be a bigger problem as time goes on, especially past, say, level seven. Okay. For myself, I would say that I'm a dice purist, so I tend to look at things on the other side of the spectrum, and I think rolling dice is part of what makes the game fun. And like you said, I'm a traditionalist in terms of it was a dice rolling game. That's where I got my start. Uh, What would you suggest as a different or an alternative way of building stats in a more equitable way? I've been really impressed by the uh, booth systems that come out of uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition and more recently 5e, uh, where you start with, say, like 10 and then pick up an extra two points in any given stat based on what classes, races, and so on you select as you go through. And this gives you a easy way of building up a character that makes sense. Like they're always in the same kind of block uh, without necessarily having characters that have like dramatically more modifiers than another. Uh, I was in one game, for example, where I think one player had a plus 13 total mods, whereas the lowest player had plus five, which obviously is not going to uh, go well for our second player. 
So you like methods like where you have a, a base set, your race adds certain points, your class adds certain points, your background decisions add certain points, but then everybody overall has a relative even level of, of stat increases. Yeah. The, the big theme that I want to push is this idea of reducing variance, giving people the ability to play with a relatively even deck, even if it's shuffled very, very differently. So the idea of 46 reroll ones drop lowest, which to me is like the most traditional method I've used in throughout my whole gaming career, is pretty abhorrent to you. Uh, I wouldn't say it's abhorrent. It's just a really easy way to set up a situation where uh, one player is not having nearly the same level of fun. And uh, as you know, rule zero is everyone must have fun. Okay. I can agree with you on certain points of that. Absolutely. I think that yes, in terms of of everybody ending up differently, I think you're right in terms of it's not very fair. And sometimes DMs will take the position of trying to make it more fair, which in turn ends up looking a lot like a point by method or a boost method anyways, which is something that I particularly don't like. So if one person ends up with a particularly good set of stats for this game and someone else a particularly low, and then the GM says, okay, well, you get five more points to add back into your stat pool. And then all of a sudden, everybody's even anyways. If you're doing that, I kind of get where you're coming from, because if you do that, then why didn't you just use this a point by method in the first place if you're going to equalize everyone's stats? Yeah, it's also the coward's way out. (laughs) Interesting way to look at it. Yeah. I also think that variety is much more flavorful in a game. It's much more flavorful in any story. I do not think Lord of the Rings would be interesting if all of the characters had Gandalf's level of power. Well, yeah, you need to be able to bring like a different level into the group. and really. Let's face it, Gandalf was like the wizard NPC set to help out. Like he was clearly not to be meant to be there for most of the run. We've got hobbits for that. Sure. But if you compare your hobbits to your elven ranger who's gotten insanely high decks and much more levels, if everybody's on the same playing level all the way across the board, isn't that boring? So first off, uh, clearly we're not seeing the same power level out of, say, like Legolas out of, say, Frodo. Like these are very different levels of game to bring to a session. Um, let me let me make sure I understand what your point is here. So so variance is good, right? It's good to change up what people are doing and what they're bringing into a game. This is what classes are about in the first place, right? You're bringing in a very different skill set, a different uh, tools to bear on a situation, um, and what level your stats are just determine how sharp you can be for that. You could be a rogue with plus thirteen in your stats, or you can be a rogue with plus five. I can tell you one of them is going to have a better time. And that's specifically what I'm trying to aim at here. Yeah, I get what you're saying, though. But what about in real life? Like, I want my games to mirror real life. If I decide to be a rogue and somebody with much better physical dexterity also decides to be a rogue, shouldn't we be different because people are different? Well, yeah, I mean, he'll have better decks. But I would assume in that kind of situation, you would have other faculties to make up for it, like a higher intelligence or charisma. I mean, that's assuming that everybody's stats are equal in some way. Right. But real life isn't like that. That's true. Some people are stronger and smarter. Well, I mean, really, I I think we're kind of dancing around the idea of like, do you want to encourage inequality in your games, which seems dicey. Can you explain to me why? Yeah. Well, so like, let's take uh, the current game that we're playing, right? Um, Pathfinder, as a lot of people will know, has a very different power level between different classes. And so if you end up in a situation where a certain character has, say, the lower side of the stat block and then also plays a lower power level character, they're going to have a bad time if they're not as uh, invested in uh, creating a really powerful characters for the rest of the table. Right. Uh, and so while you may not be able to control what kind of characters they should play, which I think is definitely over a few lines, at least setting up a situation where they have a similar stat block to draw from would be a huge improvement over, say, 
a roll of the dice. So would you also suggest that in order to do this, everybody has the exact same numerical value overall? Not at all. Let, let me give you an example. I've been very fond of variants of the point by system for a very long time. Um, and for those of you who don't know, uh, point by is uh, basically a, a system where you can tailor a character based on a certain kind of budget. So for, uh, let's say, in in Pathfinder, if you have a 15-point buy, which is kind of like the standard assumption for a lot of the APs, uh, you'd end up with a, a set block that's something like 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, 8 across your six stats, or a total of five before racial modifiers. Um, and if you get really careful with how you lay out those points, you can actually end up with something like three 14s, a 12, a 10, and an 8, which is, strictly speaking, more optimal. Um, and there's nothing requiring you to not say sacrifice one of those 14s to have all 10s to avoid a negative stat. You can very much tailor this budget to meet whatever kind of character you're trying to build, different kinds of rogues, say. Um, but because it's under a budget, you're still giving everybody at the table the same like chips to cash in on whatever it is that they care about, which increases your level of choices well, maintaining a, a minimum level of variance, which is really the the thing that I think is actually pushed in a lot of economics is this idea of like choice is always better. Whatever you can do to add additional options is good, whether or not people take them. They just should be there. And if you have a character with five total modifiers, your options are limited. You're not going to play a monk with five total modifiers, right? Why? Because you would need, say, dex and wisdom and strength and con to make a monk who's able to have, say, a similar amount of armor class as even just like a cleric who's walking around as a tin can. Okay. The thing that I never really understand when you talk about this method is if everything is so equitable all the way across the board, across every game you ever play, where does the interesting flavor ever come from? I mean, you say it comes from classes, but I mean, there's so many stories about there about people who've ended up playing, having to play a character with a three in a stat and they had just this crazy amount of fun because they had to do all these ridiculous things to make up for a super low stat, or they had another character that had a really high stat and they got to do all these really cool things. They could never do any other game before because point by systems don't allow for that in either direction. So the two follow-up questions that I have for that is uh, one, I don't believe I've ever heard of somebody talking pleasantly about a character with a three and a stat uh, in the current tense. Like this is never an ongoing thing. Um, and especially I would invite you to chatter with the other people at the table uh, who are playing with a character who has say, oh, I don't know, 28 int uh, as a wizard uh, could very easily overpower the other players at the table. Uh, as far as choices, though, aren't we staring at something like three bookshelves worth of books? Like there's so many different options you can go with any of these systems that the, the stat generation is the smallest portion of it. It's just the the set of Legos you have to start with. Sure. And I think sometimes it's fun to have a bigger stack of Legos and sometimes it's fun to have a smaller stack of Legos. Do you need to have a bigger stack of Legos than someone else, Rob? No, but should it matter? <laughs> like, I mean, it always it always comes down to me to the idea of life isn't fair. And if you want a game that represents life, it shouldn't always be fair. That's fair. But I mean, a lot of players also play D&D &D to escape their current life, right? That's true. But I think you will find that the majority of the people are middle of the road and point by methods make you middle of the road. Can, can you expand what you mean by, by point by methods and make you middle of the road? I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Specifically, I mean that if you're always playing in a point by method, you're never going to be exceptionally great at something or exceptionally weak at something else. You're not going to have 
the same flavor or diversity in your character build as you will when you're using the randomness of dice. Okay. So so this is about like being far outside of the average. Is that like an accurate way of saying it? Exceptional. Exceptional or exceptionally weak in some ways. Yeah. Okay. I This is one of the kind of like the second order problems that comes up with um, rolling dice is that um, a lot of these systems, I, I'm going to use 3.5 and Pathfinder as examples here because the CR systems are relatively similar. It's easy to, to compare against. Um, a lot of these make assumptions about what your set should be to fit into a lot of the pre-written campaign material or even just to match up against the normal monsters in the bestiary. Sure. Right. Um, and the problem is that the CR builds in the assumption of what your stats would be based on the averages of the stat rolling methods mm-hmm. or, notably, the point by system. And so if you have a character who has, say, 16 strength out of the gate based on having 14 starting strength and then two from a racial modifier, this is about what the game is expecting. But if you instead bring in a character that has like an 18 or a 20 strength, God forbid, higher at level one, this is now creating a situation where you're unbalancing the the basic expectations of the game, what they expect you to need to fight, say, like a CR one. And if you're suddenly now much stronger than what the game is expecting, this means that all of the other players at the table are going to feel weaker in comparison. Um, one of the things that I really like uh, to, to illustrate this is like, uh, you know, the, the line was if uh, once everyone's special, then nobody is. The, the thing here is if <laughs> this is something I've seen come up at tables all the time, because like I've seen players who roll high completely take over and derail a campaign, especially when they say like go into a dungeon and just start soloing it on their own, which is uh, unnerving for the other players to say the least. Uh, I would much rather create a situation where everyone is special. Uh, and that needs to start somewhere most commonly in character generation. I mean, you could also make the argument that if no one starts special, then no one's still special. I mean, that seems pretty fatalistic, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's sure. Yeah, it's fatalistic, but I want realism in my games and I am not as strong as Arnold Schwarzenegger, but that doesn't mean he couldn't be an adventurer. And yeah, if we go into a dungeon together, I'm going to let him solo things. I would dare say that Arnold in his movies would probably be upwards of level 16. So yeah, you probably should. Right. But, but that's, <laughs> that's my whole point though, is there is a diversity in life that is not expressed by a point by method. Sure. But I mean, every other game that we play starts with a certain assumption of what fair is right in checkers. You start with all your pieces in the same place and backgammon, all of your pieces are set in the same space. And you're, you're rolling just to see who goes first. That's all the dice actually add to this. And D&D is just a very elaborate, very high commitment way of taking a game where you start with whatever your stats are and then go off and, and have adventures with them, which is great. Um, but if you're starting in a situation where, say, somebody has like twice as many pieces as you, that could be either a very good or a bad thing, depending on the game. And in D&D, this is represented in your starting stats. I don't necessarily see it that way. I think of a game like Civilization, where if you want to play against comparable players, you set your difficulty to a harder level, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make the game any less challenging for them or for you. See, now I'm actually very much a, a fan of handicap-based stat generation. I've seen a tier list before that lays out character classes um, against each other, say like with uh, druids, wizards, and clerics being tier one, uh, second tier characters being things like uh, sorcerers, uh, oracles, like your your non-prepared casters. Then you have, say, like rogues and maguses coming in as tier three and that kind of thing. Uh, and the the 
solution offered by a tiered point buy is that you can add additional points for these other players to make up for the lack of their their classes and eight power uh i think it'd be perfectly reasonable to start off tier one characters with say like a 15 point buy and then add another two for each tier up somebody goes to as a way of compensating for their ability to say uh not bend reality to their whim um how do you <laughs> how do you compensate for player creativity then uh, player creativity is one good thing. players, regardless of their stats, have good answers. That, that's fair. But I think that player creativity is more often a function of experience than, say, like how creative one person is. Um, and so I think it'd be totally reasonable to put a maybe not a penalty on the veteran. That seems rude. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you've like, been playing for 15 years. You get the lower stats. Right, well, I, not just that, but like, oh, here is a 15 point by except for taking five off like that. That'd be a rough. Um <laughs> But um, I could easily see a situation where similar to adding extra points for, say, like playing a different tier, if you turned around and somebody's like, no, you just gave him an extra five points on the buy. That seems like it'd be a reasonable way of helping him survive a bit longer um, or just be more durable in general. So what do you think about the concept that perhaps the I mean, life isn't fair, right? (laughs) Right. Well, what do you think about the concept, though, that perhaps the issue around the table isn't the fact that people have different stats or ended up in a better or worse light? Maybe the issue is just that they know what the other people's stats are. Well, I mean, that might be something, but I mean, we're getting perilously dis- close to talking about like unionization here, so we, we don't necessarily need to dive into Oh, I mean, what is, point, <laughs> what is point by if it's not absolutely unionization? Uh, I'm... <laughs> I hesitate to compare point by to minimum wage. I don't think I'll ever claw that back. So, so we'll move on from that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, so like, let's say I don't think you're going to ever get away from a situation where the players know each other's stats. Um, but I, I do really like those ideas of, say, uh, rewarding characters who play for the team, uh, characters who aren't necessarily like the most powerful ones at the table and generally helping newbies get grounded. I think those are fun. Uh, I, I was talking to one of my other D and D buddies earlier today about the idea of like a karma system where like, if you do something to help set up somebody for another, like if you trip someone before they get axed by the barbarian, uh, you could say like toss a, a karma token to them as a DM that they could cash in for say like a plus two against a roll later. I mean, it's similar to the, uh, hero point systems. Yeah. Um, just as a way of kind of like rewarding, um, helpful gameplay because the the worst case situation and I, I think you've seen this go off the rails more than a few times is that you end up with a player who has rolled uh very well and they start enjoying how much more powerful than they are they are than say like the world and they proceed to either run off on their own and start uh crushing dungeons without the benefit of the party uh or and this is perhaps a more alarming one openly flaunting the law because it doesn't matter anyway um, and, uh, those kind of situations can just turn into a toxic, uh, campaign ending problem very, very quickly. But do you really think that the solution is a stat generation method or is it a player problem? I mean, in that kind of scenario, you could obviously resort to like bounty hunters and assassins, but that seems a little harsh. It's much better to fix it. I mean, I guess I can see but... your, I can see the <laughs> argument that a problem player with better stats is going to be more of a problem player. Oh yeah, absolutely. What, what was the name that you gave the, uh, the character who's there to like kind of sow discord? Yeah, so I, I just picked this out of your book. Um, this this would be the fugitive from page eight, uh, the character who uh, tends to escape their daily life. If you give that kind of player the budget to uh, go off and flaunt the law, they're going to flaunt the law. 
<laughs> they're going to do that regardless of whatever their status. Ah, but they will do it much less effectively if they're in line with the rest of the party. Yeah, Ideally, you I would mean, all want the entire party able to style on a group of guards, right? Sure, but have you ever seen low stats stop a problem player from causing problems? Uh, notably, no, because generally when they have a lower budget, they feel more threatened and end up behaving better, which is actually part of my point. It does sound to me, though, like the, the case you're making for stats, though, is is to stop people from playing the game the way they want to play. I mean, if you're a fugitive who's hell-bent on lighting windmills on fire, yeah. <laughs> okay, I mean, fair <laughs> enough. But at, at the same time, I, I don't know. I, I can, it's, I'm in this weird spot because I, I always understand what you're trying to say. I just, I mean, what, 25 years of gaming? I cannot remember a single game I enjoyed that had a point-by system. Right. And it's just it loses variety for me. And I think that I think I'm just coming from it from a personal place of being jaded just because, yeah, we've tried it probably over 100 times and it's never worked. You've tried a point by system well over 100 times and it's never worked in 25 years of gaming. I'm pretty sure we're close to that. I mean, we've gamed once or twice a week for 25 years. Yeah. So so taking this back to the psychology element of the podcast, um, I would dare say that a lot of the more veteran gamers uh, really seek dopamine in the form of like an 18 strength right out of the gate. Well, I mean, in psychology, everyone seeks dopamine. Right. And yeah. it's the only thing you really like. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the problem with this, though, is that if you're trying to pitch a point by system for somebody who's got like the munchies for high strength, uh, they're just not going to have a good time. Of course, that game's going to fall apart. They're not getting their fix. And their fix can be wrong. Their priors can be. It's never too late to be wrong. I think for me, I think it breaks down in that once the randomness of real life is gone from the story, the story no longer reflects real life for me. There are people who are stronger than me. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. There are people who are smarter, more dexterous, far superior to me in all of these stats. Very humble of you. But why should I have no fun traveling around with them? Well, so here's the thing. Your fun isn't dependent on other people being worse than you. Your fun is dependent on showing up to a table and playing a game with a group of them to tackle a wide variety of challenges involving monsters, myths, traps, dragons, and all manner of things. Definitely not beholders because, you know, copyright. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, the thing here is that this whole stat generation method being what kills or, or helps games maintain is not going to be the fundamental thing that are go is going into your games. It's just a matter of can you create an even keel from every player to start from uh, and then take this back to a world, ideally in one that's actually sustained from players who want to keep showing up uh, and can get over these like big demands to have a huge starting stat block, which is, again, another big benefit of the boost system from, say, like 5e, where if you can turn around and, and just know that you have one starting set that's an 18, there's no rolling involved, all players can build for it or have a more well-rounded character if they need it. Um, but so, it, it gives you the options. And I think that for me is probably the least desirable thing about a boost system, because if I play a human fighter who had a criminal background and I want to play that again in 10 years, I've got the exact same stats. Right. Well, and it's a point by with more steps. It just, to me, it just <laughs> seems like, okay, well, if I wanted to play a computer game instead of hanging out and having a diverse, like this is sort of like life experience, mm -hmm. I just play a computer game. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. This is why I've kind of slowly circled around this idea of the tiered point system, particularly around classes and experience, um, because it gives you flexibility to invest in whatever particular direction you want to go, um, but doesn't necessarily 
commit you to having be the same character each time. I, I think that's a lot of the appeal of uh, the Pathfinder system with like their enormous amount of splat books. Like right now I'm staring at a, a cupboard with no less than 45 splat books like added in addition to the main one. Um, and, and these just give you a lot of options to play all manner of characters like paladins who aren't paladins uh, and that kind of like esoteric build that is something that I personally really live for. I enjoy it. Okay. So it seems like we have... St- Still very differing opinions. Certainly, certainly. (laughs) I think listening to us talk back and forth about this topic, though, it does seem to me the thing I keep running into is that the the actual argument we're having is not about stats. It's about players. And really, this is an argument about the power dynamic at a table. Okay. Because we're we're setting up a situation where you're committing to, I don't know, a months long game session with other people. And if you're beginning this from a fundamental assumption of someone is going to have the worst stats at the table, that person will be impacted by that multiple times over a very, very long uh, endeavor. And the, the thing about games, um, like, are you familiar with the, like the rules for what makes a game fun? I've definitely experienced them. <laughs> so, so like in game design, um, a lot of the things that are really emphasized are things like short rounds um, that have low commitment. So you can like drop in and play a game and then stop and be done. Um, and the thing about D&D is that it's basically the opposite of that. Yeah, it is. They're not short. They're very long rounds. They last forever. And you're going to be playing this for months and months and months. As much as those rules might exist, I can't think of a single game I've been in that I'd enjoyed like that you know, month after month or willing to go back and play over and over again that follows any of those rules. Well, yeah. Like every great game, Civilization, you think of all your great computer role-playing games, like they're all huge investments of time. Yeah. None of them are. So I don't know. I think that maybe that's the idea of a good board game, but probably not a good role-playing game. Yeah. Because I think what makes a role-playing game fun is story immersion. Yeah. And you're not going to get that in a short round. I, I, I think it's actually even less about the story immersion because the it, when you really think when, when I think about D anD D at least, um, I I keep thinking of like the shaman around the campfire telling stories to like the kids of the tribe. You know, like the, this is a primal thing wired down. Like humans love narrative. Sure, we, we look for stories everywhere, and any kind of situation where you can kind of like create a story, especially with a group, is a really powerful. One this is where ideology comes from. This is where we end up with all of the the great like epics and. Uh, <sighs> Gosh, the Iliad, among other, like the, we, we're our entire culture is saturated with stories that we're able to sit down and tell stories about, and notably, none of them mention stat generation. It's true, but you do have characters that stand out with much higher stats than their counterparts, and that doesn't make the story any less interesting. It makes it more interesting. Like if everyone in the Trojan War was Achilles, that doesn't really make him a very cool character. Oh, I mean, he definitely dropped Khan. So. Uh, <laughs> That, that and that's that's the problem though, right? If you have one character who's out here selling the other army, then suddenly drops because he gets taken out in the heel. Oh man, sorry, but why is that, a pro- that makes a great story. <laughs> so why would that be a problem? Well, I mean, I mean, it is a story playing game. You want your characters to have diversity, otherwise they're just so they're not unique. So, well, see, and that's exactly the problem. Tell me, how special do the other soldiers on the boat with Achilles feel? Well, if you talk about his Myrmidons, I think they feel pretty darn special. Yeah, but they're not Achilles, right? Yeah, they're not Achilles, but <laughs> it doesn't mean they don't go back and have a great story to tell. That's fair. It is fun to watch him die. I'll give you that. <laughs> okay, so any other points you have? Any other thoughts? I think that um, I was looking over the archetypes in your in your book um, earlier today, and I I really want to stress this idea of thinking of 
character generation less about uh, like enforcing a set of rules or like trying to figure out how to make everyone equal and more about how to create a situation where everybody gets to have that main character feeling uh, regularly, ideally at least once a session, preferably several times within the same group where they're able to come in and contribute in a meaningful way and not be overshadowed by another character who has figured out how to, I don't know, apply their charisma to a dozen skill checks or something um, with a six charisma because this is typically where it goes in the the more convoluted systems like 3.5 and pathfinder um and it just makes those problems worse this is less of an issue in 5e so if that's what you're playing by all means have fun with your boost um but uh i would just encourage anybody listening to try to uh create the fairest gaming environment possible i am curious though like one thing i feel like has been lost in those boost systems is the dm having the ability to play off just abhorrently low stats which can be incredibly fun what what is abhorrently low out of curiosity? Three, four, five kind of territory, super low, horrible charisma. This person should never be the face of the oh, party talking to like other people. Developmental disorder. Type yeah, yeah. Stuff. Okay. Sure. Sure. All right. Fair. Is that a character you'd ever choose to play? It's a character I have played and oh. I very much enjoyed these kind of characters. Okay. Because they are, they're breaking the mold of what an adventurer is. Okay. That's fair. Personally, I would rather play the character with the higher stats. But inevitably, we're all going to take a turn in that seat. Yeah. And that is kind of the point of playing with a group for a really long period of time. Because, yes, maybe today you only have the plus one total modifier. But in the next game, you might be the plus seven total modifier. Uh, see, now that that's that feels like a dicey bet, though, because like I, I've been playing with this group for, gosh, what is it, eight years now? I think that out of that time, uh, I've been on the top end maybe twice, uh, which Granted, may color my opinions in this space. I'll give you that. Um, I don't know. I would feel bad bringing somebody along if they had like a five con. Seems like it'd be a hard time for them. Well, I mean, I, I can definitely appreciate that. I've been very low con in the game we're playing in right now. How many uh, times have you died? Too many to count. Yeah, probably probably equal to my con score at this point, at least. Um, but that's it. That's a different point. That's rough, buddy. But that doesn't, and and I will say, yeah, sure. There's some frustrating moments with that, but also, how many of our role play experiences at the table have been based on the fact that the characters are interacting with the fact that I've had to die so many times? That's true. Well, I mean, major depressive order is rarely a laughing matter, but I think you do a good job of bringing some comedy to it. <laughs> well, you know, if there's one thing I love about psychology, is at least how to enjoy all of these psychosomatic portions of things. I, for one, am very happy to have provided your emotional support dragon. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, I have a, an emotional support pet who travels around <laughs> to help me get over the many myriad of deaths that I have faced. But that's kind of to my point, though. Like, if we all had the same stats, I wouldn't be in this unique position to add that kind of flavor to the game. See, I see that kind of argument. And the, the problem, the truth of the matter is that other players at the table have died more than you. So I would hardly write this off as being purely a character generation uh, fault, because um, there, there's a lot of dice in the air, if you will, uh, in this particular campaign. I mean, if we're measuring it by how many characters die in a given campaign, I think that that'll end up being a very wide range for a lot of players. Well, sure. And obviously, I don't think that every game should be, you know, death-centric. Lethal. Lethal. Le all that lethal. <laughs> Always, for me, the story is the most important part of any game, yeah. regardless of what stats are on. I, I have to say that one of my very favorite favorite games I've ever played in was a one-off, like, two-session game that we didn't have stat sheets, no dice. It was just role-play. Mm -hmm. 
and just the GM saying, yes, you can do that or no, you can't do that. Yeah. And I think that that kind of, in a way, illustrates my point about it's a dice rolling game, but if you're taking away dice at stats, why don't you take away dice everywhere else? I mean, variance is important for a lot of things, if only to like add the thrill of like whether or not something will go through. But, um, but, but not in terms of how different people are. Well, I mean, like, let's say if you're in like combat, missing one swing or failing one save is very different than rolling the dice and uh, coming up as a minority during stat generation. I don't know. Is it like we're, like we're getting awfully close to like the social contract Hobbes kind of situation of like, wh- how would you design a world if you could not see who you'd be before you entered it? Um, ideally you'd want to create the most just world possible, right? I mean, we've run some games in the past though, where stats were in order randomly rolled for what our class was Mm -hmm. even taking into account that our stats might not match that at all. Oh, I hated that. It was the worst. We've had some pretty fun games like that. Oh yeah. No, you can have fun with a lot of things. It's just like from a game design standpoint, it seems bad. In some ways I feel weird about harping on your method for getting stats just because in the end, if a game's going the way I like it to go and it's all about story anyways, it really doesn't matter what's on the sheet. Yeah. But achieving your goals. I kind of want the sheet to have enough variance to make the story more believable anyways. I, I think another way of saying what you're getting at here is you want enough variance to make it seem like victory isn't certain. Because mm. you want a chance you can win. You don't want a perfect chance no, I, you can win, and you don't want a perfect chance you can lose. I don't even sure. know if it's that. It's it's <laughs> that it's that I want the characters to have enough diversity in their capabilities that it feels like I'm dealing with real people. Mm. Yeah, I know certain people in my real world life are way better at certain skills than me, and yeah, some of that comes to what feats I chose, what skills I invested my skill points into, but some of that just comes with. What kind of body and brain was I born with? That's right. Well, okay. So let's stick with the real world example for a moment. So yes, it's absolutely great to meet the wide variety of people in the real world that have a very different set of skill sets or good at different things. Um, but when you run into that one guy who's better than you at everything, you mm-hmm. hate that dude. Don't put him in your table. I, you know, I, <laughs> I, no, I think I look more at the motivation side of things. Really? You surround yourself with people who are better than you, so you strive to become better. So you're sitting at a table with Chad, and I mean capital C, Chad. He's got 18 in everything because the dice were just on fire this time. You're sitting down to a game with him for three months Uh with him over here flexing with his barbarian fighter wizard build. And this is fine. You have no concerns. I mean, that's obviously a very... Personally, I'm executing Chad. You won't be able to. His stats are too good. I, that's why I'm the GM in this case. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I, I see what you're saying, obviously. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense that if he's that high of a level, he's got 18 in every stat. Yeah. Yeah, obviously that's going to be an extreme scenario, which we should look at because it could happen in a die rolling method. You yeah. could have that one in two million chance or whatever yeah. that you get all 18s. Also known. Technically possible. Uh, in a large enough sample as inevitable. Yes, <laughs> technically inevitable. I would say in 25 years of gaming, I've never seen it, but okay. it's still possible. I it's look- also possible for monkeys to type Shakespeare, but I've never seen it. Okay. Well, I think that this is something that we're definitely going to continue sparring on for some time. <laughs> uh, All right. So I will we, close out this point we, by merely saying I'm looking forward to being Chad in your next game. Awesome. So we come to the end of this portion of the session and we have resolved nothing of our differences, but we've had some good laughs at least. This is the way. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Let's move on to tricks of the trade. In today's tricks of the trade, we're going to be talking about some stat generation methods that you can explore in your various campaigns. So first, I'll get started. One of the most traditional stat rolling methods, often just called the standard, is 4d6, discarding the lowest dice results and adding the three remaining dice numbers together. This one is oftentimes arbitrated by saying you can re-roll ones. We, at least in our group, have a tendency to do that, which gives you a minimum of a six instead of a minimum of a three. On the more standardized stat rolling methods, I would be remiss if I didn't introduce the concept of the heroic array. Uh, This is the one usually used by the DMG to stat out your elite monsters who are supposed to present a significant challenge for the party. Uh, And this just gives you a very simple 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, 8. Uh, which is equivalent to a 15-point buy. And lets you put them in any place you want. Correct. Yes, they're not set. So one of the more random ones that we've uh, played around with, um, any stat method that you are rolling and you're forcing your players to leave the stats in order. Mm. So you roll strength, dex, con, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma in order, and you're stuck with whatever the number on the dice is. I think that adds an element of, uh, we could call it chaos, to the game. Fear would be another good word for it. <laughs> it's like your worst nightmare, right? Yeah. Like we're rolling and I don't have a choice of where I get to put things. Yeah. I mean, the goal is maximize choice, reduce variance. And this is uh, minimize choice, maximize variance. Uh, so it, Yeah. Weird from a person who, like myself, tends to think of themselves as more lawful, likes the, the rolling methods of stats. So that is interesting. Maybe there's a little bit of my darker side of personality there that likes a little bit of that chaos. Got, got some shadows to integrate there, Rob. Uh, so uh, <laughs> another method that I think is really interesting is the dice pool method where you have 24 D6 oh, and you get to assign them <laughs> to your stats and roll them. You have to have a minimum of 3D6 for every stat. And in heroic games, um, this is sometimes increased to 2060D6 that you get to assign. That uh, sounds like a very exciting dice rolling session, uh, albeit not one I would sign up for. <laughs> um, fleshing out the idea of the point buy, I, I really like point buy because it, it rewards careful decision making, uh, especially like not over investing in one given stat. So, for example, if you actually take the 15 point buy from regular Pathfinder stat generation, rather than having a 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, 8, you could actually have three 14s, a 12, a 10, and an 8. And that is a very reasonable stat array to bring into a group. Also, mathematically, you end up with one more modifier out of this method. So, it's actually numerically better. Uh, rewarding people who have a more well-rounded character, in fact. Interesting. So you say that by having a lot of muddy middle, you actually end up with a better overall base modifier. I and mean, if everybody's highest stat is a plus three and you have three plus twos, I think you're doing pretty well. Okay. Uh, so my last method, I don't know, maybe you'll be on, more on board with it because it does involve point buy. Ooh. It's called the hybrid method and it combines dice rolling, which I love, and point buy, which you love, but you roll for the number of points you get to spend based on your array. So for the average array, you roll 4d6, the elite array 8d6, and a heroic array would be 12d6. And then you spend the points based on what you rolled for the array. Interesting. Uh, Still very uh, chaotic, not my favorite cup of tea, but I think that that uh, gives you at least a little bit more budget to play with. 
Um, for this last point, uh, I'll go over the, uh, the boost system that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, and the idea here is that you would start with like the same 10 in every stat, uh, and then based on your race, class, background, and, uh, free boosts, uh, I believe this is the standard in both Pathfinder second edition and 5e strengths of the system. You're able to invest extra stat points into say like strength for a fighter or wisdom for a druid. And so you, so you end up with a stat block that actually matches your character purely based on the decisions you've made for the kind of race you want to play, the kind of class and so on. Uh, and so this gives you a very uh, well-balanced character against the rest of the party that notably caps you out from having like a really high, say like 20 starting strength or something that would really tilt off the uh, mechanics of the system, which I think is one of the strengths of it. I will say as far as all of the... Um non-dice rolling stat generation methods i do like that system the best um just because it does i think it plays in well to character choices and i think that's pretty pretty unique about it yeah notably it is a point by system that has more restrictions on it so it makes sense that that would appeal to you and i (laughs) nice (laughs) and i do think another point to that method is is it lets you decide what you're playing ahead of time rather than as a result of what the dice rolled which i think is in some senses that is a really good thing about a point by method or your style of method is you're not really limited based on what the dice say so to that point i can see some some real merits of the system and i and i would like to say to everyone listening despite our vast differences in what we like in terms of generating stats for our characters we do play in like all the same games together that's true and so we're still able to get along in game and across the table, despite our different uh, ideologies. Ideologies, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of our session. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. Check out my book, Session Zero: The DMG to Writing Great Campaigns in Any System. It is available on Amazon, and there's a link to it in the session notes. Also, if you'd like to drop us a line, tell us about your favorite dice rolling methods or stat generation methods, please do so. The email is all one word, dungeonsdragonpsychology at gmail.com. Next week, we've got my friend and fellow role player, Kimothy, who's going to be talking about writing compelling villains. Thank you so much for listening. See you next session.